Well, thank you, Pastor Mark, and thank you, children. Um, For the rest of us, I'm going to invite you all to stand at this time for our scripture reading and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. And we'll be reading verses 45 through 56. Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 45. Immediately, he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him. And ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is the word of the God. You may have a seat. Would you join with me as we pray to our great Lord? Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning to praise you as our sovereign God and our King. You are righteous and good, faithful and true. And we thank you for your abounding love, your mercy, and your kindness in our lives. Through Christ, you do not cease to show compassion toward us, not just in healing us physically and emotionally, but most importantly, by meeting our greatest need, which is spiritual. As we were reminded through the devotional that was just shared, we thank you for sending your Son to restore what we had ruined, for granting us salvation and forgiveness of sin through the cross. And in your manifold wisdom, Lord, you did not stop at saving us, but you adopted us into your family, your church, that we might be a community of saints, redeemed and set apart for your purpose. We are humbled by this great privilege, knowing that at the end of the day, we are sinners deserving of your judgment and wrath. As your family, the household of God, we continue to trust and look to you and to your word. We live in a day and age where there is much fear, division, and confusion. And this world we live in has rejected and abandoned your authority and truth. Yet we know that the gospel is the remedy and the power of God for salvation to all who would believe. 
So in spite of much resistance and hostility, help us to boldly and faithfully proclaim your truth, for that is our calling as a church. Would you also continue to sanctify us in your truth? Even this morning, by the power of your Spirit, would you transform us more and more into the likeness of your Son, knowing that we are called not only to defend the truth, but also to live as your children, to reflect your godliness and holiness in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom we are to shine as lights in the world. We acknowledge that Christ is the head of this church and the one who has kept us together from the very beginning through many seasons of testing and trials. And this last year has been no exception. It's not been easy for many of us, and our faith has been tested in new ways. But looking back, we see your faithfulness to us, how you have not tempted us beyond our ability, but by your grace helped us to endure and grow closer to Christ and to one another. In light of the recent trend with COVID and the direction of our state and county, we thank you for your mercies. Lord, would you continue to help us as a church to walk by faith with all humility and gentleness, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit that we have in Christ. May we not take this gift of unity for granted, but daily repent of the pride that is in each of our hearts and bear with and pursue one another in the love of Christ. We're thankful for your shepherding, your care, and your protection over us throughout the pandemic as we've been able to gather as a church for worship and most recently transition indoors. As we anticipate being able to meet without masks one day soon, we look to you to get us there together. For those with weaker consciences, we pray that you would strengthen their faith in Christ. For all of us, help us to exercise a mutual care and love for one another to lay down our preferences for the sake of our fellow brothers and sisters and for the unity of your church. While we are definitely thankful that California will be reopening in a couple days, we remember that much of the world is still dealing with the peak of the pandemic. We pray for the church in places like India, Europe, and Brazil, where cases continue to rise. Would you encourage and embolden the faith of believers there? And we pray for the Morales family who are preparing to leave for Colombia soon, as well as for missionaries who are presently laboring under very challenging circumstances. May we as your people continue to pray, trusting in your promise that you will build your church, that the gospel will go forth to all nations, and that neither Christian persecution, nor a global pandemic, nor the gates of hell will thwart your plan of salvation. So as we await Christ's return, may your will be done, and may your kingdom come in the hearts of men, women, and children of every tribe, tongue, and people as they submit to Christ as Lord. We pray for the salvation of our family members, of our friends and co-workers, and in particular for those who serve in our nation's government. Would you grant them repentance and faith in Christ? We also pray for our sister lighthouse churches in San Diego, L.A., and Orange County, that they would hold fast to your truth 
and shine the light of the gospel in their homes and in their communities. Would you be with Pastor John even now as he continues to struggle with his back, that his spirit would be uplifted even as his body is laid low. We also remember those in our congregation with ongoing health issues. We pray for families of newborns, for expecting and engaged couples, for our collegians who recently graduated. Lord, would they trust and walk according to your will as they face various transitions in life. Finally, as we come to the exposition of your word, we thank you for the testimony of Genesis. It reminds us of who you are, a God who is holy, a God of justice, but a God who saves and cares for sinners like us through Christ. Would you speak through Pastor Mark this morning? And would you help us as a congregation to receive your truth with meekness and faith that we might not only hear your word, but obey it? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Ted, for shepherding us in prayer, and Peter for shepherding our hearts in song. What a joy it is to be with you. Everybody's in their proper rows and nicely separated. Um, One of my greatest joys and delights and thanks to the Lord is not only for you all, but the chance to be with you all. And short of heaven, this is really the best place to be. Just to update you as you've heard us pray, it's our desire as a church to move towards doing mask optional worship. I know that sounds earth shattering. Um, I know for some it's a struggle, especially those of you with children, those who might not have been able to be vaccinated, um, and those with newborns. And so what is more important to us is Christ and the good news of the gospel and the unity that we have. So we do not want to walk any faster than the Lord would have us. And we do that together as a family. But I wanted to let you know that that's our desire. It's what we're praying for. And I do want to reach out to you, to the church, if there is a reason, and there are many good reasons, that you would feel uncomfortable with us moving, or even coming into the sanctuary if some were not wearing masks, even though... My understanding is that San Jose is at the 70% vaccination and our church is almost entirely vaccinated is my understanding. But if that is still a concern for you or your family, I'm going to ask you to reach out to the elders, Peter, Ted, and I, just so we can hear what your concerns are, so we can pray and so we as the shepherds here can look at how can we make this work and move forward together, how can we take account of your concerns or some of the challenges? Because brothers and sisters, as a family in Christ, when some are not able to worship, be they sick or whatever the reasons, it is our responsibility together to help one another make it to the throne of grace. Okay? So um, thank you uh, for hearing us. Please pray and please do pull us aside and reach out to us if there are some concerns there. Well, if you spend time with my wife, she might share with you how her husband enjoys spending time with saints who have died. And it is not because I have a sixth sense. 
It may be because I'm a little bit odd, but as we spend time with the saints who have gone before us, they become our friends. And the Lord has left us their books and their writings, and He's left us the Word of God so that the apostles and the believers in the Bible, that we have a chance to spend time with them. And you will find that in hard times, they become our dearest and most wonderful friends. They speak to us and they put our lives and our times in perspective. We have a tendency a little bit sometimes to think the world revolves around us and everything that's going on in our world is everything that matters. And of course, the news we hear, the books we read, the entertainment we see, that's where it goes. And yet as we read through the lives and the writings of saints who have gone before, we're reminded there is no testing or temptation, but such as is common to man, but the Lord is going to provide a way through it. We realize that we are not alone, that the problems we have are similar, the challenges are similar, the battles that we fight are similar. And many times we're encouraged to see that there are those who have gone before us who because of Christ have triumphed in far worse or more difficult circumstances than COVID-19 or whatever we're dealing with. And for those of you who have been able to spend or participate in our book club, if you have not already, you will soon be meeting two of the most influential fellow believers and pastors in the history of the church, in the history of orthodoxy, and quite frankly in the history of the world. I would like to think that they're friends of mine. Maybe I'm a friend of theirs. But these two fellow believers are well worth spending time with. They're well worth learning from. And as you do so and spend time with them, you're going to discover that by God's design, these two brothers have a few interesting things in common. For starters, both are African. And both were African pastors in 4th century A.D. Africa. And it's interesting to consider that because we live in a time and an age, brothers and sisters, if you travel around the world, where most people think Christianity is a white American religion because that is what they are told, or that is what they see, or that is what they view on TV, where white conservative evangelicalism has become the face of Christianity. And also the confusion to many people in the world. But these two brothers were African. And one was frequently referred to by his enemies as the Black Dwarf. And they did so in a derogatory way to make fun of his size and the color of his skin. The other was of Berber ancestry. Berber being the indigenous North African tribes in what is today Algeria or the north of Africa. And both were ethnic outsiders in their own way. This is a time and season where Rome prevailed, both in politics in the empire but also in the church. And Rome was the center of the universe. And for both of these men, God used Christian parents from very humble homes to help prepare them for an uncompromising Christian ministry. And this is to be an encouragement to you parents. It's not the size of your house. It's not the cars you drive. It's not the Christian schools you send your children to. In one case, both parents were Christian. In the other, 
His mother was a believer who prayed for him and pursued him, but his father was an unbeliever. And it's wonderful to see how the Lord is faithful to his promises and works even in homes that are divided by faith. It's a testimony to God's grace. And both by God's grace were called to stand for Christ and his gospel in some of the most brutal theological and political battles and compromises in the history of the church. In fact, both of them had to stand at a time and a place where almost the entirety of the church, including the leadership, was compromising with the world and the politicians of the day. And though both, by God's grace, were theological giants and legends, and one is still hailed today by the Oxford history of Western philosophy as arguably the most influential philosopher who ever lived. That is their reputation. And yet in their day and in their time, both were known and beloved for being incredibly humble, gracious, loving shepherds of their local church. They were not seminarians who abandoned the local church and went elsewhere to sit with a book. They were there in the mix from the least to the greatest. And over time, brothers and sisters, what continued to set these two men apart is that in a world and a worldly church that never stopped trying to make God and the gospel small, the enduring testimony of their lives, their doctrine, and their ministry was that their God, the God of the Bible... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The enduring testimony of their lives when the rest of the world and the church was trying to shrink God and shrink the gospel and make men big and make the gospel about what we choose and what we do. The enduring testimony of these men's lives was that the God of Scripture was and is and continues to be incredibly big. Incredibly worthy, incredibly wonderful, incredibly good and gracious and true. And to sum it up, the testimony of their lives was that God is holy. And because their God was holy and uncompromising in His holiness, and because their gospel was holy and uncompromising in its holiness, their lives and their ministry and their testimonies were uncompromisingly holy. And the gospel that they lived and they shared was infinitely big. And this, of course, is not just the testimony of Athanasius, pastor and bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, or Augustine, the pastor and bishop of Hippo in North Africa. This, brothers and sisters, is the testimony of the saints throughout the history of the world. Because this is the testimony of their God, and this is the testimony of His Word, beginning in Genesis, where the Lord God shows us, because He is holy, His Word and His work are infinitely greater than us and our sin and anything we can hope or do. And brothers and sisters, if you're a sinner like me, this is good news. 
And that brings us to our first point for this morning. And if the AV team could help me with the first slide, if that's possible. Our first point this morning is, because the Lord God is holy, He and His Word are infinitely greater than us and our sin. Because the Lord God is holy, He and His Word are infinitely greater than us and our sin. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Genesis 3, and we will read verses 17 to the end of the chapter. Verse 17 to the end of the chapter. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold... The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground which he was taken, from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Some of you know since COVID and shelter in place hit, magic has become a popular hobby in the Chin household. And when we use that term magic, we're really talking about illusions, like making a coin disappear. And the definition of an illusion, an illusion by definition, is something that appears to be true and real to our senses, but in fact is not. Something that appears to be true and real to our senses, but in fact is not. And by and large, most of us love illusions. I don't know about you, I, I enjoy them. Okay, And many of us will pay big bucks at Vegas or other places or go and see movies so that for a few hours we can be fooled into believing things are different than they are. And at least for a few hours or a few moments we can forget about how terrible the world is around us. But from the beginning, brothers and sisters, the illusions, sadly, that we love the most are those that make God and His Word appear small and those that make us appear bigger and better than we are. And in fact, brothers and sisters, it's a common practice in our lives more often than not, in the things that we do and say, to make the things that we feel uncomfortable with small so that we can feel bigger and better about ourselves. That we're in control. That we've got it covered. 
that we call the shots, that we set the terms, that we are Lord of our lives, our destiny, our future, our career, whatever it is that you want. And by implication, not God and His Word. And brothers and sisters, this is the illusion and lie that the serpent sells to the first man and woman when he says in chapter 3, verse 4, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the serpent doing here? He's taking a knock at the holiness of God. And in an attempt to make God appear smaller and us or Adam and Eve much bigger, this lying illusion is essentially a shot albeit subtle and small, at the holiness of God. And what do we mean by the holiness of God? When we talk about the holiness of God, we're talking, as you can see the definition up here, it's, we're talking about God's inherent, His infinite, and when we say infinite, we mean beyond measure or compare. His inherent, His infinite, His sinless majesty, and that's His Lordship, His infinite and inherent and sinless greatness and perfection that resists all compromises of His character. That resists all compromises of His character. Brothers and sisters, this is what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are all about. As we come to the end, the Lord is really summarizing for us everything that has come before And Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are all about God's infinite glory and greatness and His goodness and His wisdom and His perfection. Starting in the beginning where He creates in six literal days out of nothing, time, space, and matter in the universe. And He does so by His Word. And it is all very good. And it's part of the same package deal, brothers and sisters, as we come to the very end, what we just read, where he kicks out the first man and woman and he removes sin and sinners from his holy place of worship. This is the holiness of God. And it's something, brothers and sisters, that we feel uncomfortable with. Because typically we feel uncomfortable around people or things that are bigger and better than we are. It's okay if we see them on the TV screen, but it's very different when you show up next to that person who's wearing a sweater and suit that's nicer than yours. Or your car drives up and the person's car is cleaner than yours. Or you stand at an event, as I have many times, and the person is significantly taller than you are. It's very different when you're close to that. It's okay when it's at a distance. But what gets confused many times, brothers and sisters, is the holiness of God and the holiness of God's people. The holiness of God points out some of the distinct and important ways in which God is eternally different from us, even though we are created in His likeness and His image. And we come to, in Scripture, the holiness of God's people or His creatures. We are referring to something a little bit different. It's nuance. We're referring to the wholehearted devotedness to the wholehearted participation in His holiness and His glory according to His Word. The wholehearted devotion to and participation in 
His holiness and His glory according to His word. It's the idea that we belong, our hearts, our lives, our work, everything entirely to Him. All that we have belongs to Him. All that we are is because of Him. And brothers and sisters, this is what we were created to be in Genesis 1 and 2. And this is how we reflect the image and likeness of our holy God. It's not by outshining Him. It's not by outdoing Him or outthinking Him. It's by being devoted to and participating in His beauty, His wonder, His greatness, His holiness, not ours. This is how we reflect His image and likeness. And we do so through a devotion that's expressed, brothers and sisters, by faith or trust in Him and through obedience to His word. That's what holiness looks like, brothers and sisters. It's not going to the mountaintop and chanting and being alone with a book. It's simply, as we've said in weeks past, by faith, holding his hand and walking where he goes. It's that simple childlike trust that he's the one who knows where we should be going and we are safe in his hands, that he is good and he is worthy of our confidence and trust. Because he is infinitely good and infinitely greater and infinitely wiser than we are. And that's where we get Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with some of your heart. All of your heart. Lean not on whose understanding? Your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And you will make your path straight? No. He will make your path straight. And when think about we think about that, it flies in the face of many of the things that come to our mind when we're struggling. When believers struggle, many times the words we hear is, I'm struggling to understand this. I have a hard time believing this. This is hard for me. And we realize what ties us up and wraps us up is our belief that our understanding is best. That God doesn't know better than we do. And it's in Genesis 3... That is exactly the lie that the first man and woman buy. That God is less than holy. He is less than good. They buy and pursue the illusion that their lives will be better without God and His Word. That they can make a better life without God. That they can make God and His Word disappear. That they can write their own story They can write the own ending to their story. And brothers and sisters, that's a lie we hear in our movies, in our social media, in our blogs, in just about everything that we have coming in. That's that's what so much of our social media is all about. You can write the ending of your own story. And we hear that in movies, we see that in books, and Harry Potter, and all of these other books. This is the message that they bring. You can write the end to your own story. It's destiny. Your choice. You don't have to be locked to your past. And this is what Satan has always been selling, and this is what we've been buying. And it is this delusion, this denial of the holiness of God, that God is actually the one in control and He knows what's best. It's this denial of the holiness of God's Word. Essentially saying God and His Word does not matter. It's irrelevant. It's secondary. 
This is what leads the first man and woman to brazenly take and eat what God and His Word has commanded them not to in Genesis 3, 6. And it is also the lion delusion that leads them to despair where they are running to hide in some bushes, as opposed to turning to God for help. It's two sides of the same coin. And brothers and sisters, we see that with the sins of our day, whether it be materialism, whether it be looking at pornography, whether it be whatever idol you want to talk about. In the beginning, it's God is irrelevant, and it's after God's not big enough to save me. Two sides of the same coin. Brothers and sisters, so much of our despair and depression and anxiety is wrapped up in our failure to believe that God is bigger than our sin and He's bigger than us. I have to fix this myself. But as we come to the end of Genesis 3, the good news is that the Lord God steps in and He does not abandon these two sinners to their delusions and their illusions and their lies. He steps in and he exposes this lie and he shatters this illusion. And he does so as he always does. He does so with his word. And he does so specifically through his justice and his judgment, the justice and judgment of his word, which shows the first man and woman in us. Guess what? He's holy. He hasn't changed He hasn't disappeared. Just because we don't think about Him, just because we don't see Him, just because He's out of sight, He hasn't gone anywhere. He's still the same God who created the universe in six days by His Word. And as we come to the end of Genesis 3, and you come down to Genesis 3.22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold. The Lord God brings this chapter of the history of the world, to a close in the same way he started it. He does so with his word. And in this way, he shows the first man and woman and us that the final word does not belong to us and our sin. The final word belongs to him. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of revelation. And this is the news, brothers and sisters, when you're being hammered and life is hard and it seems like you have the short end of the stick. That, brothers and sisters, we need to share with someone. The final word is not up to us in our sin. The final word, brothers and sisters, belongs to God. Why? Because he is holy. And because without his word and without his holiness left to ourselves, we're in very bad shape, brothers and sisters. By God's grace, he knows that and he steps in to do what needs to be done. And this brings us to our next point for this morning. And AV team, could you help me with that? Without the holiness of God and his word, we become holy unholy, broken, and evil. Without the holiness of God and His Word, we become unholy, broken, and evil. This is the point that the Lord makes in Genesis 3.22. And it's an important point that He needs to make. We have this propensity to think that we can fix our own problems. We have a propensity to believe that we have a holiness of our own. We have a propensity to believe that we've got to take things into our own hands. 
They're not doing a good job. Let me come in and fix it. If only they did it like I did. Only to discover many times that by taking things into our own hands, we make it worse. And in God's kindness and mercy, He needs to bring us to ourselves like the prodigal son in the pigsty to show us that without the Father's love and without the Father's estate and without the Father's wealth, we are nothing. And we are worse than nothing. We become unholy, we become broken, we become evil. So it's not by accident. Genesis 3 closes the same way Genesis 1 begins. It begins with the work of God's Word. That's not by accident. God's showing the first man and woman and us where our hope is found. And it's not found in us. In Genesis 3.22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And here the Lord God is beginning to show how unbelief in the holiness of God, doubting the holiness of God, how our choices and our decisions and the illusions we believe, they're not just flights of fancy, brothers and sisters. They change who we are. It talks about what the man has become. There's been a drastic and radical change in who the man is. And of course, by extension, this is the first man and the first woman and all their offspring. He shows us what man has become, and it's not good. Now, where have we heard these words before? The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. See if you can find it in your Bible. I'll give you a hint. It's Genesis 3, 4, and 5. And it comes from the serpent. The serpent says to the first woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, what's going on here? This sounds very similar, does it not? But as they say, the devil is in the details. And context is king. And as you look closely, you have to say, what is the difference between what the serpent says and what God says? And though they sound similar, they are worlds apart in meaning. The serpent's words, unlike the Lord's, begin with a lie and a slanderous insinuation. You will not surely die. For God knows. And as we said before, this is a knock on the holiness of God. God is not as holy and good as you thought. Or as much as you put Him up there as. His word is worthless. And when we combine this with the words, When you eat of it, you will be like God. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, Dot, dot, dot. You will be like God. They take on a very, very clear meaning. The implication here is Adam and Eve, your life is incomplete. You're missing out on something good. Without God, without His holiness, without His word, you can do and you can be better. 
It's the implication, you will be like God. The implication here, knowing good and evil, you will be like God, is that you're going to be better. You're going to be bigger. You're going to be larger. You're going to be just like God. And this is going to be a good thing. Brothers and sisters, this is the way all great heresies and all great hustles and all great con jobs go. They mix lies with the truth. And they do so to offer you something that sounds familiar and it sounds safe. And in fact, guess what? It provides you something with new and improved and better. But in actual fact, it leads you to a very different place. That's what happens here. Satan implies your life is going to be so much better and bigger. And in fact, it becomes far worse. A few years back, we were in Los Angeles and we were at Grace Community Church. And it was one of my big desires, being the holy man that I am. I wanted to take my children and my wife to the milk bar. You can see the throb and the heartbeat. Grace Community Church, get to the milk bar, get to the milk bar. The famous David Chang Milk Bar. And so after church, I yelped milk in the Melrose area. And we got an address. And so we drove down and did all the turns and everything. And we show up and we walk in. And initially I felt a little bit weird because there was no Winchell's Donuts next to it. And then when we all got in there and stood there, we realized this was not the Milk Bar. This was a place called Milk, which was on Melrose, a few blocks away from the milk bar. I don't think that was by accident. And our family discovered very quickly, this was a very different place. And brothers and sisters, this is what Satan does over and over and over again. And throughout the history of the world and the conflicts of the church and the despair and despondency of believers everywhere, it all starts in the same way, which is to take a portion of the truth and mix in a little bit of a lie that causes you to doubt the Lord and chip away at the holiness of God just a little bit by little bit by little bit. Oh, it's no big deal. And before you know it, your heart and your life and your world is in a very different place. And we think of the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons who all say the Bible is good and hide in the small spaces that they don't believe that Jesus is true God and a full member of the Trinity. And that, brothers and sisters, is the same battle that Athanasius fought against Arius. And the whole world took, took up against Athanasius because it was very inconvenient to believe That Jesus was indeed fully God. And yet Athanasius knew from the word of the Lord and from the gospel. This is a lie from the pit and a hustle. That the average person is going to say, oh no big deal. Until they discover that they're in a very different place. And brothers and sisters, it happens in the big things and the small things. Whether it's our viewing of pornography, whether it's how we handle physical intimacy, whether it's what we view and we look at. And in Genesis 3.22, when God says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, 
He's not saying this is good. He begins with the word behold. And the last time this word behold is used before this is in Genesis 1.31. Have a look at Genesis 1.31. What does Genesis 1.31 say? It says, And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, what? It was what? Very good. It was very good. But when we come to His closing summation of the first man and woman, He doesn't say, Behold, what they did was very good. Instead, he says, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. And then he adds, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. And then he stops. He does something very interesting. He stops. He doesn't finish out loud or on paper his thought or his words. But clearly the implication is that man has become something that is not good. In fact, man has become something that is broken and evil. And instead of completing his thought, he leaves it for us and gives us the opportunity to finish his sentence for ourselves. And as we follow the words of the Lord backwards... When we think how sweet is our Lord, that He gives us the opportunity for His holiness to become ours, and His Word to become ours. As you follow the words, they point us back to His holiness in Genesis 1 and 2. Two of the words that are repeated. Take and eat. Take and eat. They point us back to Genesis 2 and 3. Have a look at Genesis 2.15. Genesis 2.15. It says, The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden. And then drop down to verse 16. It says, The Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of what? Every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then we drop down to Genesis 2.22. It says, And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man He made into a woman, and He brought her to the man. This is after talking about the Lord God saying that it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make for him a helper fit for him. Okay, what's going on here? Throughout Genesis 2, it is God taking and God putting that makes man whole. It's God taking man and putting him in the garden that he has created for him. And providing every wonderful thing to eat and a place of worship and fellowship with God. It's God's work, brothers and sisters, that makes the man whole and complete and good. And as we get to the second half of Genesis 2, it's not good for the man to be alone. What's he going to do? Well, he can't fix this problem on his own. So God takes a rib out of, excuse me, 
Adam's side and from that creates a helper fit for him. And at the end, we see that the two are brought together. They're filled with joy and delight. They are naked and not ashamed. It is very good. I don't think, brothers and sisters, it's by accident. The Lord God uses these words. And He shows us in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We are not whole. We're not complete. Without God's word and His work in our life. We were created. To be with God. He made us for Himself. As Augustine says. Lord, you made us for yourself and we are restless until we find our rest in you. We were created to be with God. We were created to live his holiness, not our holiness. And it's his work in our lives that makes us complete. We go through this repeatedly with our premaritals. Look, your marriage is not a work of man. And at the point it does, it's going to become a mess. Your marriage is a gift of love from God. He put the two of you together. That's why Jesus in Matthew 19 says, Whom God has, what? Put together, let no man separate. That's why the Lord hates divorce. And what leads to divorce is when we take things into our own hands and think we can do a better job than God. And guess what? Things don't get better, they get worse. And so what God emphasizes as we come to this summary statement of the man and woman, the focus is on what they have taken and what they have eaten and what they've gone out and reached and how they've tried to fix things and make things better without God, His holiness, or His work. And rather than make things better, they've shown just how broken and how unholy And how evil a man can become. Because what God does through his judgment and his justice, through these words, he points us back to everything that he's just walked Adam and Eve and the serpent through. And what he's shown, their blame shifting, their excuses, the husband throwing the wife under the bus... Without God's holiness. And without the holiness of His Word. We, brothers and sisters, become unholy. We become evil. We become not good. Because God created us, brothers and sisters. We are His creatures. And we were created to be part of His holiness. Not creating some lie or illusion of our own Holiness. And when the Lord God says, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also, the Lord God is calling us to make an observation and comparison. He's calling us to look back and say, Look, this is what happened the first time. The first man and woman decided to take things into their own hands and be their own gods. And look at the ugliness that happened. By comparison, if they continue on this path, lest he reach out his hand and take also, referring to the tree of life, and live forever. 
Later, God's going to highlight, not only is this even more offensive to the Lord, but it's even more destructive to the first man and woman. And he allows us to finish his words. Fear, shame, bitterness, resentment, blame shifting, separation, brokenness, a world of unbelief and sin where we are big and God is small. The good news of God's word is God is not going to allow that to happen. He is not going to allow us to take his life and his holiness into our hands. Professing Christians and pastors beware. That's why Augustine says, Without you, what am I to myself but a guide to my own self-destruction? Without you, what am I to myself but a guide to my own self-destruction? And it's a reminder, brothers and sisters... Our lives are not as bad as they should be. Because God graciously steps in and brings His justice and judgment to slow things down. Because at the end of the day, praise God, His holiness is greater than our sin. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. Could I have my final slide? Thank you, brothers and sister. Our only hope is in the holiness of God in Christ. Our only hope is in the holiness of God in Christ. Recently, if you've been following following the reopening of our sports world, there have been these events where fans have acted inappropriately, spitting on players, throwing things at them. And the question is whether enough is being done and what usually happens typically is that those fans get quote-unquote barred for life. They're never able to come, allowed to come back into the stadium. Many people feel that that's not enough. And what I find interesting is we don't seem to have a problem with that. Nobody's jumping up and down saying, oh, way too harsh. Everybody gets it. Everybody gets that people are paying a lot of money to be here. Everybody gets that it's the playoffs and something special is happening here. And everybody gets that that type of behavior and attitude has no place inside the arena. Nobody has a problem that I've heard. There's no huge debates and political debates. The same way we have debates about all these other things. But when it comes to the house of the Lord, brothers and sisters, and it comes to worship, somehow we have a very different attitude. Well, it's wrong to exclude this person or that person, or it's wrong to exclude this behavior or this attitude, or it's wrong to do those things. And somehow God is mean or unkind or unjust to exclude people from his place of worship, which is what the garden is. The garden is God's place of worship that he's provided, a place of life, a place of food, a place of joy, a place of delight, a place of fellowship, where the creatures he has created can enjoy his holiness and fellowship with him. Sometimes when it comes to our own sin, we seem to have a double standard. 
It should be okay for us to come in. Everybody should be allowed. But God comes and makes a point. Holiness means things are right when they happen on God's terms, not ours. He is the creator and he is holy. And we are his creation. And we have it backwards, brothers and sisters. We view athletes and sports as special. And we view God's holiness as completely irrelevant. Well, God sets that right at the end of this chapter. And as you see, not only does he send out the first man and woman, he does more than that. It says he drives them out, kicks them out of the garden. And some believe the implication here is they did not want to go, understandably. Therefore, verse 23, the Lord God sent him out from the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man. And what God does here, brothers and sisters, is he shows the first man and woman he is always faithful to his word. He has promised that they will have to go out and work the ground now. And he sends them out. But he also shows that he is going to separate and remove what is unholy from what is holy. That holiness is precious and dear and costly to him. And at the entrance of the garden in the east, he places the cherubim in a flaming sword. And as we read through the rest of scripture, the cherubim are typically the angels who are associated with God's presence. They are in the temple. And fire is, or God uses it as a symbol of his holiness. It gives light and it gives warmth, but it will destroy anything that is not like it. And the sword, brothers and sisters, is a symbol of God's justice. We use the sword as a symbol of war. But as you go through scripture for God, the sword is a symbol of his justice, the death sentence, to slay those who are guilty of sin. A life for a life. The wages of sin is death. And at the end of this, brothers and sisters, the first man and woman are cast away from the life and fellowship of God. And there is no way they are able, because God has made it that way, to come back in and to defile the holiness of God. There is nothing they can do. And God shows them very clearly, and it is a harsh and strong lesson, God's holiness, brothers and sisters, and fellowship and life, they exist not on our terms, brothers and sisters. They exist on God's terms, the terms of His holiness and His Word. And as you read through the rest of the Old Testament and what we walk through with the children this morning, And the lesson that God goes over repeatedly with his children is that we in and of ourselves cannot make ourselves holy, nor can we draw near to God, nor can we enter into his life and fellowship. We are unworthy, we are broken, we are evil, and we are unable to fix ourselves. There is nothing we can do to get back in. But what God does do throughout the Old Testament he, is He provides provisions in ways in which we can be cared to. Until He brings a tree of life. And that tree of life is a cross. 
on which His Son pays the costly price for our holiness. His Son dies on the cross so that His holiness can be ours. And He takes our sin so that He can credit to us His infinite goodness, His infinite grace, His infinite worthiness, His infinite beauty, and His infinite glory. And as we come to the end of the story, brothers and sisters, what's worth noticing is that the tree of life is mentioned most frequently in the book of Revelation. And at the very end of the book of Revelation, what is made mention is how those who have washed their robes, clean garments, will be able to eat of the tree of life. Brothers and sisters, the Lord God makes it clear from beginning to end. Our holiness is not enough. And yet He has provided a way. And the only way is not in us or taking things into our own hands. And so as we consider these things, brothers and sisters, there is a choice that is before us. Every person has a choice between our holiness or the holiness of Christ. Which holiness, brothers and sisters, will you choose? Our holiness is what we do with our own hands, what we reach, what we take, what we eat. But the holiness of Christ is received by faith in His holiness. Now this may sound abstract and theological. But brothers and sisters, I can't tell you how often in shepherding and in counsel, in dealing with folks who are struggling, how much and how often the situation is that we are struggling really not with God, we are struggling with our own holiness. That it is woefully inadequate that we cannot get back into the garden, that we are not whole, we are not complete. And so we'll look at everything to make ourselves seem better than we are. Church, ministry, serving in church, being a pastor, working hard, being a good parent, having a great family. All of these things that all they do, brothers and sisters, is they lead to self-righteousness. Because none of those things died on the cross to save you. And if that's all we needed, Jesus did not have to come and die for us. As you walk through the Gospels, what's remarkable, brothers and sisters, is the writers of the Gospel are taking great pains to show us every step of the way the holiness of Jesus, how He is special and set apart and different, and how He is God. That's the text that we read in Mark 6 this morning. And what's amazing to see, brothers and sisters, is how much we struggle to let go of our holiness and instead find our rest in the holiness of Christ. That what we really need more of, brothers and sisters, is not all this complicated counseling and efforts and workshops. I know a lot of you are reading, you know, when God is, when people are big and God is small. And that's a helpful book, brothers and sisters. And it addresses many of these issues. But at the end of the day, brothers and sisters, 
What you need is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What you need is to be in His Word. What you need is Christ for, be, for you to be big in your life. And the reason we are reluctant to go there is because for Christ to be big, we have to let go of our holiness. And we have to place our lives and our families and our worship in His hand. And we have to hear what He says. And we have to trust that He is indeed good. And we have to be willing to let go of all the things in this world that give us our comfort and make us feel good about ourselves in exchange for God's gift of holiness that gives us life. What's worth noticing, I hope you guys have a chance to read Augustine's Confessions, is that Augustine begins with an incredible amount of praise and he ends with the final three books in the Confessions are devoted to the book of Genesis and the beginning. Why does God, excuse me, why does Augustine do that? His book, The Confessions, was considered to be the first autobiography in the Western world. He's framing his life with the Word of God. It's worth noticing, brothers and sisters, that both Augustine and Athanasius were able to recite almost the entirety of the Bible from memory. Neither of them understood or read Hebrew. They couldn't read the Old Testament in the original language. And yet, in Latin and Greek, from memory, they had the entirety of Scripture at their disposal. Why was that? It's because Christ was holy, and because of that, His Word was important to them. And their lives were filled with Christ. And that is why they were uncompromising when people tried to chip away at little aspects of the gospel that everybody else thought, this is no big deal, this is no big deal, this is no big deal. Why? It was important to them because Christ is holy. And they saw that it was an attack, an assault on on our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Athanasius wrote, you will not see anyone who is striving after his spiritual advancement who is not given to spiritual reading. You will not see anyone who is striving after his spiritual advancement, who is not given to spiritual reading. And I raise this, brothers and sisters, to think about our lives, to say, okay, is God big in your life? Are you desperate for his holiness? And do you see that his holiness is a life or death matter to you? If that is indeed the case, Let's have a look at our time and what we spend our time thinking about and doing. And to what extent are we filling our lives with things that don't matter or make us feel better about ourselves as opposed to a holy God who first shows us how broken we are, but then shows us He is willing to give us The very life of His Son. This summer, brothers and sisters, you will have a chance to have a break from school, from ministry, from other things. What will fill your heart and what will fill your time? It will be a demonstration, brothers and sisters, of who or what is big in your life. And what illusions or delusions you choose to live by. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus.
You came to give us what we do not have. We are incomplete and broken until you restore us where we were meant to be. Resting, not in our own holiness, but yours. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us, woeful sinners. But thank you for showing us that indeed you have not changed, you are not absent. Your word does matter. You are infinitely worthy and good and great and gracious and true. And our faith in you, Lord Jesus, is never disappointed. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to sing uh, Behold Our God as a song of response to the sermon.